Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you. We are continuing our way through 1 Samuel 7, or 1 Samuel, and today we'll be in 1 Samuel 7. So you can uh, follow along in your Bibles or in the bulletin where the passage is printed for you. Hear the word of the Lord. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From, that, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering and the, the Phil, excuse me, to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was a peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. 
Father, strengthen us now with your word. Lord, cause us to receive it with faith and humility and to joy and to see here in this story the glories of Christ and the provision of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I've titled this sermon, Repentance, and I have to admit that I tremble a little bit at approaching this topic. Repentance, which I'll define in a moment more fully, but in brief means turning away from sin and to God, is a fairly high-stakes part of the Christian life, beginning to end. If we get repentance wrong, if we get our understanding of it wrong and our our practice of it wrong, it can be damaging, almost like drinking uh, contaminated uh, contaminated tap water that over time sort of causes your body to fall into a deep sickness. Some of you were in the third service last week when uh, Alex Brower, uh, who's a new member of our congregation, gave his testimony. And this theme of, of a sort of contaminated understanding of repentance was part of his story. And he, here's, here's something he said, speaking about uh, a particular uh, church that had taught him this. He said, the church taught me the depths of my sin and the height of God's holiness. The diagnosis was correct, but the remedy I was given, quite simply, was wrong. The church asked me to find a definitive moment of salvation to rest in. And the church told me that I, had, that I kept having to do repentance checks. And so I turned inward for years and years, looking at myself to, to try to find some sort of satisfaction, some sort of hope, but I never could. He was given a contaminated view of repentance, and it made his soul sick. Many of us can resonate with that. We are either gripped with doubt about our repentance and troubled about whether we really believe, or we fall into the opposite error and we never think once about repentance. So if that word is foreign to you, or if it haunts you, by God's grace, His word for us can cause it to be an actual comfort to us. And that's my prayer for us this morning. So this morning, we'll answer three questions about repentance. Three questions about repentance. What is repentance? What are the movements of repentance? And then how not to repent? So what is repentance? What are the movements of repentance and how not to repent? So first, what is repentance? I'll give it to you up top and then we'll unpack it. Repentance is a saving grace and a response. Repentance is a saving grace and a response. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a historic summary of what Christians believe, and our church uses it as its doctrinal standards, defines repentance this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin or her sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, 
turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now that's a lot of words. In brief, repentance is an awareness of your sin and the mercy of God, which together leads you to turn from your sin and to walk in obedience. Now, the sinner, that's all of us, is the main subject of that sentence. It says, the sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God, turns from it unto God. So repentance is an action that we take. But don't miss how the sentence begins. Repentance is a saving grace. A saving grace, a free gift of God that saves. And so before repentance is an act of man, it is a gift of God. You might wonder, how is that the case if man does the act of repentance? Well, a few places in Scripture that make this clear. One is in Acts 11 when uh, Christian Jews learned for the first time that the gospel is for non-Jews or Gentiles. And it says, they said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted or given repentance that leads to life. Or in 2 Timothy, Paul is instructing Timothy about correcting his opponents. And it says, God may perhaps grant them or give them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Probably most famously and and strongly is Ephesians 2, where it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So you can imagine a corpse laying in a grave, not able to do much, and that God, being rich in mercy in that moment, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and this is a gift from God, not a result of works. And so faith and repentance are a gift from God to which we respond. It's it's like when someone stirs you from sleep. You are the one that wakes up, but you wake up because somebody woke you. You were stirred. And so while we say that repentance is a gift from God, we also have to be careful that we don't say that we're just robots in the matter. No, Jesus commands an action when he comes preaching. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mysteriously, these things go together. I like the way that author A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, salvation is from our side a choice. From the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending a conquest of the Most High God. Our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God. Do we see that dynamic here in our passage? I think we do. For one, God's mercy has already been moving in the people of Israel before we take up and read The ark has been returned to Israel, not because Israel went and got it, but because God moved in the Philistines to bring it back and say, you guys take it. Israel did not say, let's repent so that we can get the ark back, but rather God 
returned the ark to him and it's to them and it's and in its mere returning he stirred in the people and what did he stir grief and longing verse 2 says that the people were lamenting after god other translations say longed for the lord or sought the lord it's like uh, the old hymn says i sought the lord And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. And so repentance is at once a saving grace and a response And so inseparable that the response is part of the saving grace. And I think that adds so much sweetness to repentance. Repentance is not cleaning up your life so that God will come to you. Rather, it's walking in new life because God has come to you, has come to claim you as his own. So it's easy to read this passage and think, oh, this is about Israel repenting. But that's actually incomplete. The emphasis is really on Samuel leading Israel in repentance. On either side of this story of good leadership are two stories of bad leadership. Before you have Eli and his sons, and the next you have Saul. But here you have a godly leader taking the people of Israel through the movements of repentance. And he does so by modeling, by being a prototype of the three offices that Christ will come to fulfill and which he um, holds forever, and that is of prophet, priest, and king. And so that brings us to our, our next question. What are those movements of repentance? What are those movements of repentance? Well, there are three. One movement of repentance is following Christ as prophet. Following Christ as prophet or turning at God's word. Samuel tells the people in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Here Samuel is acting as a prophet declaring the will of God. Put away your idols and serve God only. In other words, clean house. Repentance involves obeying God when he tells you to put away his competition. Well, this is both an initial response to the gospel and a lifelong process in response to the gospel. John Calvin says that our hearts are like idol factories, that we just keep producing idols and finding things other, other than God to worship. You know, repentance is sort of like picking up after toddlers. I see some toddlers in the room. You parents of young kids will know. You know how you find yourself picking up the same toys every day, maybe multiple times a day, and they're just always back on the floor somehow. Why is that? Well, it's because you're your child keeps finding things to play with. You know, out of the bin, onto the floor, 
back into the bin over and over and over until they graduate to iPads and iPhones. Well, our hearts are skilled at making messes. We are skilled, naturally, at finding other things to worship besides God. So if you feel like your life is full of idols scattered about, well, know that you're not alone and you're not unique. This is your fallen nature at play. In fact, if you find that you have nothing to repent of, you're delirious. You have something, and I have something, many things, to repent of. And you know, it can feel like a burden to think, oh, i got to clean up my life all the time. Well, no. What's wonderful is that God leads us in repentance. You know, when I was a kid and I had to clean my room, sometimes I'd be so overcome with the mess that I'd just sit in the middle of all my chaos, absolutely frozen, just being like, I, I don't know where to start. <laughs> There's too much. And my mom would come into the room and say, okay, Matt, just choose a corner and just work your way around the room until you're done. And you kind of guide me through it. Well, Christ, through his word and spirit, guides us through our repentance. He is there directing us. So, okay, that. Okay, now that. And okay, pick that up again. Well, it's still there. Pick it up. Put it all the way back. You know, Christ is there leading us by his word and spirit in our repentance. We don't create a repentance regimen. Rather, we follow Christ, our prophet, who leads us lovingly in this process. And so one movement of repentance is to obey Christ as prophet, to turn at his loving and good word. Well, a second movement of repentance is to trust in Christ as priest, to trust in Christ as priest or to rest in his sacrifice. At verse 6, we find Israel gathered at Mitzpah for what is essentially a covenant renewal ceremony. You know, they'd wandered from God and had 20-plus years of distance from Him. And Samuel, acting as a mediator, has brought them together for prayer and fasting and confession in a cleansing ritual. Well, it's at that moment that they learn that the Philistines have risen up against them to attack them. And they need a defense. And so, in verse 8, the people say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel here is acting as a priest, making sacrifice and praying for the people. Well, how does God respond? Verse 10 says, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. You can sense the, clim- you know, the climactic moment of the scene. Will God intervene? But the Lord thundered. With a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. They were defeated because someone was making intercession for them. 
You know, there are striking parallels between this battle and one that occurs just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 4. The differences are very stark and point to something significant. Both times is Israel against the Philistines. Both times the people of Israel have the ark with them. And both times there is a mighty roar and a fleeing army. It says in 1 Samuel 4, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave up a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. But then the people lost that battle, and they were the ones fleeing, like the Philistines are now fleeing. So what happened? What changed? What was different this time? Well, the difference this time is that Israel's hearts are not far from God. This time, they have one mediating for them according to the way God prescribed. And this time, the mighty roar doesn't come from them, doesn't come from the earth. It comes from heaven. A much louder roar, a much more powerful roar than anything they could muster. I like how one commentator says it. He says, Hophni and Phinehas, which were previous leaders, had sought to bring victory to Israel by bringing the Lord's ark against the Philistines. Samuel brought victory to Israel by bringing Israel back to the Lord. The only way that you have God as your defense is intercession. Samuel brought Israel back to God through sacrifice, and we, too, are brought back to God and come under his defense when we have Christ as our sacrifice. Years ago, I was doing youth ministry in Chicago, and I had taken a few through, uh, students through a Bible study, and one of the lessons was on the Day of Atonement, which is this annual ritual uh, where the people of Israel place their sins on uh, a ram, and that ram goes off into the wilderness and is, and is killed, and this people's sins are atoned for. Well, Christ is our once and for all atonement. He is that perfect sacrifice, and so we don't need to make atonement year after year. Well, a couple years later, I got a text from a student in that study that said, hey, I never told you this, but I want you to know that leading up to that lesson, I had been cutting myself. I felt so guilty and ashamed about my sexual sin that I was trying to clear my guilt by punishing myself. And when I saw that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for my guilt, I realized I was adding nothing. His wounds have already healed me. He understood that he had Christ as his defense and he needed no other. Again, quoting A.W. Tozer, he says, Whoever defends himself will have himself for defense, and he will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. That is good news. A key movement of repentance is to divest of your own defenses and cling only and exclusively to Christ. My friends, what could you offer 
that Christ has not offered? What could you bring that Christ has not brought? Nothing. And so whether it's a vice that you turn to to soothe you or endless effort that you make to try and earn God's defense, children of God, precious children of God, let it go. Let it go. It is doing nothing for you. Repentance is a saving grace that is built on the mercy of God. We're talking about the movements of repentance. We've seen that it involves obeying Christ as prophet, trusting Christ as priest, and lastly, honoring Christ as king. Honoring Christ as king or submitting to his rule. You know, I love how active Samuel is in the life of Israel after this great battle and and during this time of peace. Look at verse 16. It says, He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. So Samuel didn't just lead the people in deliverance and then peace out, but rather he watched over them and ruled them in peace. And saints, that's what Christ does for us. He is not only prophet and priest, but he is also king and good king. And how does Jesus rule us? Well, he doesn't just visit once a year. Rather, through the Spirit, He indwells our hearts. He speaks to us in His Word, and He governs us through His church. In a a very real way, Sabbath worship is Christ's itinerant ministry among His people. Every week, we gather together to do what Israel's doing here, to confess our sins, to rehearse the gospel to hear from God. And this all happens in the context of a local assembly over which God has put ordained elders or under-shepherds of Christ to provide that loving oversight. So Christ is not our king in some mystical, ethereal sense, but in a very practical and tangible way. God uses the church and the functions of the church to govern his people. Sunday worship is when God makes the rounds on us to guide us in peace. And so this is a third movement of repentance, to submit to Christ's good rule, to honor him as king. Well, we've seen that repentance is a saving grace and a response, and that Christ is the one who leads us through our repentance as prophet, priest, and king. Well, on that road of repentance, there are two pitfalls that we need to be aware of, two ways that we can um, malign a biblical understanding of repentance. And so let's move to our third point, which is how not to repent. How not to repent. And here I want to offer two truths about repentance that each come with a serious error to avoid. The first truth is this. Belief without repentance is not true belief. 
If you say you are a Christian, but you see no fruit of repentance, no evidence of turning from sin to, and to following God, then the Bible warns you that the Spirit is in fact not in you. The Bible is very clear about this. That, the Spirit is, that if the Spirit is in you, you will see the fruits and the works of the Spirit. But the error here would be to work backwards from repentance to salvation. And to say, okay, well, once I've repented enough, then I know that I'm saved. The problem with this is that you end up looking to your own perfection for your salvation, rather than at Christ's perfection. And if you look for perfection in your life as evidence that you are saved, you will never find it. You'll be like Sasquatch, or looking, it'll be like looking for Sasquatch all your life. It's not there, so you won't find it. Repentance is not turning from sin to sinlessness. It's turning from sin to a Savior who removes your sin and guides you in obedience. Well, the second truth about repentance that we need to get right is that even real repentance goes unfinished. That is, you will die with areas of your life not yet turned over to God. You are a human being in a fallen body. The only time in your life that you will be sinless is after you die and you exist in glory with God. That is when you will be free from the curse of your body and your sinful body. No Christian who ever lived has achieved sinlessness. You will not be the first. <laughs> and that is a comfort. Don't expect your own sinlessness because you won't experience it. But the error here is to say, well, okay, since I can't achieve sinlessness and since Christ atoned for my sins anyway, it sounds like re repentance is a moot point that I don't, really need to repent, and everything's taken care of. Well, Romans 6 and other places in the Bible anticipate this error. Romans 6 says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then it goes on to talk about how Christians are those who are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection so that they are made to be dead to sin and alive to him, to walk in new life with him. Faith without repentance is not true faith. And so to curb you from both of these errors, remember this. Repentance comes from the Spirit. It is born of Him and alive in you. You do not create it, but you will see it if the Spirit is in you, because it is the Spirit that leads to life. And so, in closing, repentance is not self-generated obedience. It is a saving grace, a following after our prophet, priest, king, who tells us his will, who satisfies our guilt and defends us, who rules us by his word and his spirit. Repentance is dependence before 
it's obedience. Repentance is dependence on the grace of God. It is a gift that we walk in, not a payment that we make. It is a response to never-ending grace. I opened the sermon with words from our brother Alex's testimony, and I want to close with some of how God delivered him from a self-generated repentance. He said, Like Jacob, Jesus wrestled with me, humbled me, placed my hip out of socket, and made me reliant on him over time. And so I could say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. And like Peter, say, Lord, where else could I go? You have the words of eternal life. That's good news to rest in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that our salvation is not up to us, that we are dependent on you even for our repentance because, Lord, you are strong and we are weak. You are faithful and we are unfaithful. So we rest in your promises and your provision for us. We ask that you help us to walk in new life by the power of the Spirit. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.